When Guy Bradley was shot, he was as deep into the Everglades as any human could be. He was on Cape Sable, the southernmost mainland landmass in the continental United States. Technically, it's a peninsula all its own, jutting out from the main Florida peninsula and surrounded entirely by the waters of the Florida Everglades. As far as we can tell, there has been very little human settlement out here outside of the little town of Flamingo where Bradley lived. The water is too overpowering, the land too marshy. Perhaps it was a fish camp or an entry point into the greater wilderness from the sea. The town of Flamingo itself only held a handful of individuals in its borders for a short period of time. Most of that came from a belief that Henry Flagler would use Flamingo as a launching point for his train to Key West, though this never came true. The area was lightly populated and quiet. Things rarely happened this far out. Then. Guy Bradley got shot. His wound was fatal. He was over 40 miles from the nearest city, Miami, and there weren't roads connecting him to the still tiny town. It was 1905 and there was still only a few thousand people in residence there. They wouldn't open the first hospital in Miami, Jackson Memorial Hospital, until 1918, 13 years later. That hospital today is one of the largest in the world, the third largest public hospital in the country, but medical help was almost unimaginable in Bradley's situation. Maybe he could have gotten to Key West or Naples, but it didn't matter. He was shot, he was bleeding out, and there was no simple way to treat a gunshot wound back then. Guy Bradley was dead, and alone, in the middle of the Everglades, in the sweltering July heat. Meanwhile, a few miles away, the culprit made his getaway. He headed south to Key West, overcome with guilt. His name was Walter Smith, an angry and violent figure known by the other residents of South Florida as a troublemaker. Without knowing it, in a bout of fury, Walter Smith pulled the trigger on a chain of events that is still unfolding nearly 115 years later. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. It's October, which means that I have the fortunate opportunity to tell you about some of the spookiest stories in Florida, from creepy animals to chilling ghost stories, and even a man-made horror that we are facing every day. Today, I'll tell you about the death of Guy Bradley, one of Florida's most infamous murders and the tense world that led to his demise. That is an egret wading through a low river in the Florida wilderness. They are hunters with long S-shaped necks connected to a head with a long beak. They use those beaks as precision instruments, diving at the exact moment below the surface of Florida's waters to snatch their prey from the mud below. Their secret is stillness. They stand without movement, their legs holding steady against the flow of water. They watch, waiting for prey to approach, then, with a startling fury, they snap their beaks below the water and bring up a meal, a fish, or a frog. They have beautiful white feathers that flow down their back and long black legs that keep those feathers out of the water that they use as hunting ground. If you've spent any time near Florida's waterways, you've seen these birds. 
You could also see them in almost every other continent in the world. They are native year-round in South America and Africa, and even spend some parts of the year in Asia, Europe, and the other parts of North America. These birds are everywhere. They're not as large as a heron or as small as an ibis, but Florida's egrets are abundant, a staple of our ecosystem. Over 100 years ago, we almost lost all of them. The late 1800s were a time of developing aesthetic and fashion, born on the surge from the Victorian era from England. Status was one thing, but looking rich was more important. The years leading up to the turn of the century were a complicated economic landscape, with the middle class gaining more money and starting to live better. To ensure that the divide was clear, the upper class started to dress more extravagantly, showing off all of the things they were able to afford, particularly in home design and in culture. The most outward way, however, was in their fashion. The outfits needed to be extravagant, over-the-top, colorful. They would wear complicated bustles, massive flowing skirts, delicate and expensive fabrics, and most importantly, outlandish hats. Milliners of the day were always trying to outdo the competition, seeking for a bigger show with each new product. Fruits and flowers, jewelry and decoration, anything to make it the next biggest thing. Nothing, however, was quite so popular as feathers. And at one time, no feather was more popular than that of the egret. Like I said, the egret has magnificent pearly white feathers. They range in size from thick plumage to wispy little threads. They could be bound together and create a verifiable bouquet of feathers on the top of hats. They could be delicate frames to a woman's face or a bold blistering statement emerging from the crowds. Some milliners would even sew on whole wings or wing segments to make statements with the bushel on the hat. If that's not horrifying enough, some accounts share that they would kill the birds, take them in, taxidermize them in unusual positions, and strap them to the top of the hat whole. Someone would just walk the world wearing a whole dead bird on their heads, their necks manipulated to look out at the world even after death. The birds were being killed in the hundreds, wiped out by plume hunters who swarmed into the wetlands to execute the birds one rookery at a time. They would kill the birds and return them to the urban centers, particularly New York City and London. The Smithsonian reports that, quote, in a single nine-month period, the London market had consumed feathers from nearly 130,000 egrets, end quote. After years of this behavior, the bow was about to break. Several different bird species had already been wiped out of existence and the egret was standing on the edge. If the hunting continued, the egret would be next on the list of birds firmly removed from our ecosystem. Enter Guy Bradley. Up in Boston, a woman named Harriet Hemingway, along with her husband Augustus and her cousin Mina Hill, began a boycott of feather hats and within a few months formed the National Audubon Society that exists to this day. The city was taken by storm as hundreds of women joined the movement to protect the birds. Through their efforts, the first version of the Lacey Act was passed in 1900, preventing hunters from transporting birds across state lines. No environmental protection of its kind had ever existed before this. It was a bold plan, but for now it was just that, a plan. The execution of this new law was flimsy at best, and the bird trade resumed despite the boycotts and outcry. Two years after the Lacey Act was passed, the residents of South Florida were joining the movement. The Florida Audubon Society in the area saw that the waiting birds in the Everglades were in danger and they needed a guardian, a protector. 
They didn't just need someone to prevent the birds from leaving the state. They needed someone on the front lines, in the muck, armed and ready to protect the natural fauna. Florida needed a defender. They found one in Guy Bradley. He was 32, born in Chicago, transplanted in Florida at the age of six. His father had several different jobs throughout his life, working in law enforcement, postal work, and other government positions such as school superintendent. When the Bradley family moved to Florida, they couldn't quite decide where to settle. They moved from central Florida to the coast, then further south, briefly settling in Fort Lauderdale until finally setting up shop in the tiny town of Miami. There, as a teenager, Guy and his brother Louis worked with a French plume hunter named Jean Cavillier to seek out the birds for their feathers. On their hunt, over 1,300 birds were killed. At this moment in his life, Guy Bradley was a plume hunter. 20 years passed, and Guy Bradley was no longer a man of that sort. He was an outdoorsman still, a fisher and a hunter. He sailed, worked, lived. He was married and had an infant son. He had a large mustache that pulled his face downwards, giving him a darkened expression that made him look twice his age. His appearance alone did a lot of the work for him. He did not appear as a man to be trifled with. Another man named Kirk Monroe had been tasked by the Florida Audubon Society to find a warden for the Everglades birds. About Bradley, Monroe said he was, quote, a sturdy, fearless fellow, filled with a righteous indignation against the wretches who, in open defiance of all laws, are using every effort to kill off the few remaining birds of that section, and he is anxious to be invested with authority for the protection of those that still remain, end quote. It was May of 1902, the beginning of the summer in the Everglades, and its feathered population had a brand new guardian. To take on the position, Bradley had to be a sheriff's deputy as well, which he took to with a plum. He was greeted, however, with a set of rules. The deputies who looked over the Everglades had encountered significant danger in the swamps and had developed a set of rules to keep themselves wary and on the lookout, especially for the individuals that lived out there. They were, quote, suspect every man, ask no questions, settle your own quarrels, never steal from an islander, stick by him even if you do not know him, Shoot quick when your secret is in danger. Cover your kill. End quote. Bradley was essentially headed into unknown territory, a frontier, distant from any sort of immediate backup, looking to arrest men who were desperate and ready to defend themselves and their livelihood by any means necessary. Though if Bradley was anxious, he showed no indication. He spent his first few months traveling the waterways, getting to know his new beat. He sailed west to Tokoloski Island. He sailed south to Key West. He crept along the heavily wooded passageways and prepared himself for the hunting season which began on the first of the year. In 1903, his task would truly begin. He would leave warnings at locations where he would find evidence that hunting had taken place to no avail. Industrialists were pouring into South Florida following the lead of Henry Flagler's southbound campaign and all were searching for a way to secure a foothold in the swampy new cities. Bradley was attempting to put out dozens of metaphorical fires all at once, and his allies were few and far between. Then, in the early hours of July 8th in 1905, Guy Bradley heard gunfire from the front porch of his home. The shots were coming from a boat called the Cleveland, owned and operated by one Walter Smith. Smith had been a Confederate soldier, born and raised in North Carolina. 
Throughout his years in the Confederate Army, he had seen war at its worst, taken several injuries, and left a changed, hardened man at the age of 22. He lived in the American South for several years after the war until a smallpox outbreak pushed him out of Georgia. With his two children in tow, Smith took his boat out from the South and sailed it down the coast of Florida, hopping, just as the Bradleys, from city to city, searching for a place to call home. Jacksonville? No. Juno Beach? No. Palm Beach, bustling and charming, perfect. When the Smith family settled there in 1893, he became fast friends with one Edwin Bradley and his sons Lewis and Guy. A few years later, Lewis and Guy would join Walter Smith on a plume hunt, killing off a rookery of the dark-feathered cormorants. It would be one of the last for Guy. As the reach of the Audubon arrived in Florida, Guy found his heart changing. But Smith never moved on, and he had made enemies throughout the area. During the later months of 1904 and the early months of 1905, several members of Walter Smith's family had been arrested by Guy Bradley for their illegal bird hunting. Even Smith himself had been arrested. Once, when Guy arrested Smith's son, Tom, Smith said, quote, You ever arrest one of my boys again, I'll kill you. Tensions were high in South Florida, with Smith infuriating every major player in the neighborhood, including Guy and everyone Guy had aligned himself with. The lines had been drawn. Now, in the early hours of July 8th, Smith was firing shots on his boat across the water from where Guy lived. His sons had been shooting into a rookery, and Smith knew it would just be a matter of moments until the warden arrived. Maybe that was his plan. When he arrived, a verbal confrontation took place. Smith blamed Bradley for an assault that had happened at the Smith house previously. In truth, Bradley had nothing to do with it. It was other members of the community that had a lot of issue with the way Smith behaved. Bradley was prepared to arrest Smith's sons, who Bradley had just witnessed shooting into the trees. According to Walter, the warden then fired a wild shot that struck the boat's mast. In immediate retaliation, Walter fired back and killed Guy Bradley on the spot. The warden collapsed on his boat, and Walter Smith fled. The next day, Guy was found in his little dinghy, a bullet shot clear through his body, his pistol limp in his hand. They buried his body in a cypress coffin at the edge of Cape Sable, as deep into the Everglades as anyone could go. In a fictionalized retelling of this story years later, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the mother of the Everglades, wrote the following, quote, When the worst had happened, when mistake and failure and pain had fulfilled themselves to their uttermost against the last desperate protest of the mind, what was this left, this something delicious, this respite, approaching cobwebbily along the avenues of himself? Was it this that had said to the outcast, struggle? Was it this that had murmured to the defeated victory? He did not know. He rested, smiling a little, his eyes upon the dead bird in the water. How much were they paying for plumes? That, too, was unimportant. He had seen them for a little while, glistening in the sun. End quote. Marjorie wrote that 25 years after Guy Bradley's death, a solemn condemnation of Walter Smith's actions against Florida's game warden. 
Walter Smith turned himself in, but was acquitted for the murder by a sympathetic jury. Guy Bradley's death received no justice. This injustice, however, did not go unnoticed. Bradley was considered a martyr, the first death of the environmental movement, a victim of humanity's cruelty towards the natural world and those who seek to protect it. A different Florida game warden, Columbus McLeod, was killed, supposedly, by hunters. In South Carolina, a member of their Audubon Society was brutally murdered out of nowhere. The assaults were coming frequently now, and something had to be done. Something much more serious. The story of Guy Bradley was picked up in national newspapers, and public outrage reached a boiling point. As an immediate response, the Audubon Plumage Act was passed in New York, effectively ending the plume trade in New York City, one of the trade's largest hubs. Within a few months, Congress followed suit and the importation of hats with bird feathers was banned. And at least that fight, Guy Bradley had won. But the ripples did not end there. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was profoundly impacted by Guy and his story, writing Plumes, which I read from earlier, which was inspired by the encounter between Bradley and Smith. She also wrote Wings, a nonfiction piece about the devastating impact of plume hunters. Both were published in the highly popular magazine, The Saturday Evening Post, one of the most important and widely distributed magazines in the whole country at that time. Marjorie was given a pulpit with the Post, and she used it to speak nationally about Guy Bradley, Florida's birds, and the import of environmental protection. With Marjorie's help and notoriety, the Everglades National Park was dedicated in 1947, protecting the wetlands all along the southern tip of Florida, including Cape Sable, where Guy Bradley lived and died. It's over a century later, and the fight is not over. A study published last month revealed that in the last 50 years, North America has seen a decline in bird population equating to the staggering number of nearly 3 billion. In some bird populations, particularly grassland birds like sparrows or finches, their expected population has been reduced by more than 50%. Scientists count the central cause as habitat loss, where birds are losing the usual protected safe places that they usually use to nest, feed, and live. Additionally, pesticide usage has wiped out massive amounts of bugs, which is the primary food source for many birds. Outdoor house cats hunt down birds, and even window collisions can lead to a serious reduction in their populations. No longer are birds in danger from plume hunters and fashion trends. The causes, however, are still human. We can keep our cats inside, we can hang things in the window to prevent collisions, we can plant local gardens to give birds safe places to stay throughout urban environments. For this to work, we have to start somewhere. Because, though it may not be obvious, our birds keep our ecosystem in check. They spread out seeds so the plants can reproduce naturally. They hunt down insect populations and keep them in balance, as well as being prey themselves for larger predators in their environment. Some are direct descendants from dinosaurs. Some are the oldest surviving species on the planet's surface. And Guy Bradley's fight is evidence that we can succeed. He was hired because the birds were disappearing, notably the egrets. The egrets were on the brink of extinction. Today, their population is of least concern. Bradley's mission, even though he never got to see it through, was a success. Guy Bradley's gravestone was washed away in 1960 by Hurricane Donna. It had been sitting on top of a shell ridge, an isolated stone monument sitting alone in the middle of Cape Sable. The storm had flooded the Everglades as storms so often did, but it took Bradley's monument with it. 
Bradley's body was likely lost to the sea as well. Nearly five decades had passed, and for a moment, it seemed like Bradley was gone forever. Then, fortunately, a park employee discovered the plaque and returned it to the Everglades National Park, whose visitor center sits in the little town of Flamingo, where Bradley once lived. A new memorial was erected to remember him, commemorating Bradley's legacy. It takes effort to sustain a fight. Guy Bradley didn't know what he was signing up for when he took this job, but he ran with it in his three short years in the position. He arrested those who broke the law, and he fought diligently to protect his wards. He died in that fight. Smith had told him that he'd shoot the warden if he arrested one of Smith's sons again, but the kid was shooting birds, and Bradley did his job anyway, at the expense of his own life. It takes effort to be that willing to fight for something you believe in, but the plume hunt ended. The Everglades are protected. The monument was washed away, but the plaque survived. We're losing our bird populations every day, but this chapter isn't closed. If Guy could save the egrets, who's to say we can't save our birds? We've still got to take our boat where no one can reach us and fight until our dying breath to keep them safe. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. This is episode 5 of our 12-episode season. Next week, I'm going to tell you about some of my favorite urban legends in Florida, particularly Spook Hill. Much of the research for this episode came from an outstanding book called Death in the Everglades by Stuart B. McIver. It covers the death of Guy Bradley as well as the incredible culture and interpersonal conflict in the city of Flamingo leading up to Bradley's death. It is an outstanding historical read, one that I cannot recommend enough. If you would like to read the book for yourself, you can pick up your own copy at the link in the description. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in the description below. I read every single one and I'm always looking to hear what you have to say about this show. Your reviews help the show grow and help it improve every single day. You can also reach me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. While you're there, why not share the episode with your friends? You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com, especially if you have an idea for a future episode. I'm working on season three now, and I'm always looking to hear what you want to hear. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles in the description below, along with a link to more of their fantastic music. I'll be back next Monday with another story. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and have a happy Halloween.